Good morning, everyone. Good afternoon if you're in Europe. You know, I keep wanting to play Another Day in Paradise. I really like you two, but we don't seem to be in paradise. So I keep going back to my Phil Collins favorite song. Anyway, a lot to talk about. It's been, uh, it's been a while since we did a room. We have a fantastic room today. A long-standing and dear friend of mine, Larry Jetalo. One of the sharpest uh, cookies out there. Doesn't really have uh, the awareness, I think, in the investing public that he deserves. Larry uh, really has as his clientele the highest echelons of the institutional uh, marketplace. I've known Larry going on 30 years. And over the years, he's had some of the most outstanding variant perceptions out of consensus calls that you won't hear anywhere else. And we're going to get into that in a little while. I just wanted to speak for a couple minutes about what's been happening um, since we last hit a space. Uh, I was in Three Aces, my good friend Three Aces, who's co-hosting with me. He has some, some wonderful spaces, I think. Aces, are you doing another, are you doing another space tonight with... Uh, your Tuesday night space aces? Yeah, every Tuesday night, 8 p.m. Eastern, George. Awesome. Thank awesome. You. Yeah. So uh, I was in his space the other day. I haven't done a space, I think, second. It's been a while. But so much to talk about. Let me just rattle them off, not in the order of importance, but in the order that I jotted them down. Uh, first thing is, <laughs> if I read one more thing about Twitter and Elon Musk, I'm going to put my fist through the wall. Complete waste of time. Complete waste of time. He's a bad dude. I trust him as far as I can throw him. He kind of adopts the Donald Trump approach to publicity. All publicity is good publicity as long as we're talking about him. God only knows what's going to happen with this uh, legal situation. Frankly, I don't care. The brain damage I get from reading about this stuff the sharp ratio is so low, that is to say, the noise-to-signal ratio is so high, it is a complete and utter waste of time. If my friend Stefan Hayek is in the room uh, from Germany, he made the call a couple weeks ago in our space to short Twitter. My hat's off to him. Great call. Great call. The sharpest guys I know have been saying to short Twitter. I just haven't been involved. I've got better things to do with my time. So we're not going to. So one of the ground rules today is we're not going to talk about Tesla or Twitter. Got it? If anyone brings up Tesla or Twitter, I'm shooting them down. It's going to be. I'm so energized about this. I may even throw you out of the room, not just throw you off the stage. I don't want to hear about it. Energy. Let's talk about energy. We will talk about energy. Michael Belkin stuck his neck out a few weeks ago said to short the group. I didn't go short, but sold all my longs and told people as such. Uh, Tom Thornton, I think, had a similar call. It's been spot on. Get some right, get some wrong. That's not the point. We're all here to help each other. We have a community here. We're learning from each other. Nobody has a monopoly on the truth. I just ask everyone's respectful and in a listening mode when they engage with others, not in attack mode. Some of the vitriol 
that Michael Belkin, Aces, myself were exposed to from the energy crowd, totally uncalled for. Get some right, get some wrong. For any good in this business, you're still wrong 40% of the time. Being right or wrong is not the point. The point is to conduct yourself in a, an appropriate manner and try to learn from each other. And I hope the energy crowd will learn a lesson from this. That's my victory lap. I'm not going to mention it again. The stresses and strains that are emerging right now in markets are uh, intensifying. The fault lines. Imagine you're looking at an earth, you know, a potential earthquake. You look at where the faults are. The fault lines are being stressed right now. Whether it's what's going on in Sri Lanka or other emerging economies or what's going on in Europe with the plunging euro and the specter of uh, the gas being turned off. It's pretty clear they're in a recession already. Read some of Doomberg's stuff. He's written some brilliant pieces on this. Most recent one uh, on Verbund or whatever it was from a week ago. I think you need to think the unthinkable. We're, gonna, we're seeing stuff happen. We're going to see stuff happen we've never seen before. So Europe in a recession. Currency about to crack parity. Japan. Where's the end today? 136.60. DXY, by the way, at a local high, 108 right now. But the yen just falling out of bed. The wrecking ball of the strengthening dollar wreaking havoc everywhere, putting pressures on various emerging markets. The stresses and strains are just manifesting themselves. And I, I think it's, I think it's just, just no good's going to come out. It's just so many ways to lose. A couple of podcasts I listened to recently in the last couple of days, I tweeted these out. There's a fantastic discussion between Grant Williams and Michael Gayed. Um, on YouTube, you can listen to the replay. It's not necessarily telling what you should buy or sell. It's not what this is about. It's telling you about, you know, how to look at markets and how to invest. And it was a terrific, terrific interview between Grant and Michael. And um, they're both first-rate guys with tremendous minds. And for all the haters out there that are throwing stones at Guy Ed, I got to stick up for him. I know I'm not a shrinking violet and I take issue with people and I go after people, but I go after the bad actors, the guys who are willfully and negligently, and probably in some cases criminally disseminating misinformation, the charlatans. I'll mention them by name because I don't care. Jim Cramer. It is laughable what that man does. How he can say one thing one day and then two days later, exactly the opposite. For those of you who don't um, follow him, follow Inverse Kramer. <laughs> I was I tweeted something yesterday about they should take him off the air. And someone tweeted back. It was a great response. He goes, no, 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 don't do that. It's the most valuable contrary indicator. Jim Kramer. Raoul Powell. Not only does he lead people to slaughter in these in these crappy coins, he deletes the tweets and lies about what he did after the fact. The list goes on and on and on. Listen, we, we get them right sometimes, we get them wrong sometimes. 
Michael Guyot's a great guy. He's a good guy. He's a smart guy. He's having a tough time. We've all been there. I will be there again. The nerve of anyone going after him. He's, an, he's as upright, moral backbone as anybody I know. And he's a smart guy, and I've learned a lot from him. So to all the charlatans and haters and bullshit artists that you know tweet out behind an aliases, go pound sand. Seriously. A couple other things, then we're going to get on to Larry. Um, in the last week or so, I tweeted out a bunch of stuff. On housing, looks like that's going from bad to worse, and uh, the wheels are coming off that market. Uh, I, I tweeted out there was a great, great uh, thread from one of the uh, listeners in this room. He's in the Federal Witness Protection Program, so I didn't include his name. But I tweeted out his thread that he sent to me the other day. This is a builder in Boise, Idaho. We can come back to it later. But the housing market's falling apart. And then there have been a couple of great videos out recently on um, the uh, auto market and what's happening um, to repos. There's some confusion over the numbers, but it looks like things are rolling over. And I urge everyone to go back and watch the Lucky Lopez video from a week or two ago um, where he goes around Vegas showing what's happening to the uh, used car lots. And I've had also inbound... um, Messages from a few of the listeners who have firsthand knowledge of the used car market. One fellow was saying, I think his father or father-in-law buys cars in the Dallas market, and that market's falling apart. So there's a lot of anecdotes suggesting it's all happening. And I see my good friend Mark Cahotas is in the room. Absolutely legend room last Friday. Maybe Mark will talk about it later. <laughs> there was a room. Some of these guys put together a Carvana room. And making the case for Carvana. So you listen for the first 30 or 40 minutes and it's like, okay. And then Mark just comes in and just, he was masterful, just cuts them out. But anyway, there's a lot going on, a lot of moving parts. So let's, let's get to the, let's get to the main event today. So Larry Jettle, as I mentioned, been around a while. He's one of the old timers like myself. Um, and Larry, it might be helpful to start off without telling your entire life story I mean, I've known you from the 90s, but um, you go way back your career. I think started in the 70s, uh, late 70s, early 80s. I know you went to Switzerland, you were abroad. So, Larry, maybe just talk a little bit about it. Just briefly summarize um, your your path to how you got to where you are and what it is you do exactly, and then we'll get into it. Larry, the floor is yours. Welcome. Yeah, thanks, George. Can you hear me okay? 100%. We're good. Good. Thanks. Well, yeah, I did start in the late 70s, and uh, spent uh, very late 70s, spent most of the 80s at the Luthol Group, which was, I think, one of the largest, maybe the largest independent research firms at the time. Um, it took care of the U.S. equities and uh, became the director of equity research and then left the States for several years and went to Zurich, where I worked at UBS in the institutional unit, uh, managing mostly Middle Eastern money. And uh, I left there in the early 90s. I came back, bought part of a part of a bank, private bank in Minneapolis, and ran the advisory inside of trust for five years, um, and then started this firm in actually '95. So we've been running TIS Group for 27 years now, and uh, what we do now is is basically investment strategy, but it's global. It's we try to be different because I, I, I 
don't want to comp- try and compete with the warehouse firms. Um, and so we have a different way of looking at markets, we think, and uh, we're very macro-oriented. Uh, I've set up a network of people over the years, some on the buy side, some uh, just contacts that I've built up over the decades to uh, feed information into us. And, and uh, so we present that uh, in a daily that we do. It's a two-page daily, a monthly couple of books, and uh, we have a special China project, and we have another product we do, which is uh, on the shelf, but about to come out on geopolitics. And uh, so that's who we are and what we do. That's great, Larry. And if anyone's interested, um, please contact me um, uh, or, or contact Larry directly. You can go. It's TIS Group. They have a website. As well as I'll provide his email address later. But, um, you know, if you're interested in Larry's service, and I've been a client for, I don't know, 20-some-odd years, um, I find it working valuable, and um, I think he will too. So, anyway, Larry, let's get on with it. There are a lot of fault lines um, emerging out there, a lot of ways that things can go wrong. Uh, maybe there's so much to take down at once, but what's top of mind for you right now? How are you looking at the world? What, what has your attention, Larry? Well, I think the overriding theme uh, you, you've touched on, and that is I, I have rarely seen so many things going wrong simultaneously, so many policy errors, uh, some of them unintentional, some I think are intentional. And they're coming from the highest levels. And uh, so, I, you know, if I just think about the world, I just think about a globe. Uh, maybe the, some of the topics we should touch on would be um, the effect of what the Fed is doing and about to do, especially on the dollar, what that means for emerging markets. Does Sri Lanka mean anything? Does it have anything to do with the food shortages which are developing? And then you can just skip over to Europe and the natural gas problem that's right on top of us now. Not top of them, rather. Uh, the Middle East, where we think we have uh, some edge in understanding what's going down there. And then we haven't even gotten to China yet. Uh, and, and perhaps be worthwhile talking about what that economy and politically what they're really doing uh, is, and then Japan. Why, why is Japan, <laughs> as you and I both know, George, um, if you've been around Japan a long time, as we have, uh, devaluations of the end, like the one we've just seen this year, don't occur by accident. <laughs> it's, this is intentional. So, so I think it's worth exploring what, what it is they're trying to do and, and what the impact is going to be. So that's how I'm thinking about the world right now is, we are in the very, very early stages of some massive shifts in capital flows and liquidity and policy and where markets are priced. And tell me where you want to start. So, Larry, uh, I'm going to put up the slides. You suggested uh, three slides um, that you want to refer to as you're speaking. I'm going to put them up. Um, why don't we start maybe with the Ukraine um, you, the last time we were together, it was, oh my gosh, it was back, uh, it was, you and I had a conversation, um, can't remember exactly when you were in the space, February, March, the invasion was the 24th February, as I recall. But I do, I do remember you telling me this is going to be a long drawn out affair, uh, contrary to the CNBC view of the world, which is, you know, it's going to be over within days blah 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 and you had a very differentiated uh, uh point of view and i'm just curious um what do you think about the ukraine right now not because the ukraine and russia situation is a source of all our problems but it certainly has aggravated them so 
why don't you mark to market, give us a mark to market view, what you think is going on in Ukraine, how that's playing out, what Putin's got up his sleeve. Let's start with that. And as you're speaking, I will put up uh, the Ukraine slide. So Larry, let's start with Ukraine and Russia, please. Sure. Okay. Uh, well, I have to give uh, full credit, full marks to our associate, um, Simon Hunt, who normally works on China for us, but he has uh, good connections in other parts of the world as well for some of this. Um, one of the things he has pointed out to me in the interim since February is that, we, and I think it's it's a good thing for us to do anyway, is to try and look at situations through the other guy's eyes. And that's what he's been doing, is he's trying to look at what's happening in Ukraine through Russia's eyes. Um, and what he's telling me is um, that there was an agreement, uh, well, not, a, not an agreement, there was a proposal uh, put into the West by Russia in late December, I believe it was, of last year, which redesigned or uh, realigned the security structure for Europe. This is something that Putin has been talking about for quite some time. And basically what he wanted to do was move NATO's borders back to the 1997 borders. That would basically take out much of Eastern Europe as it currently exists, which is behind NATO's borders. And of course, the West ignored that. That, when you look at it in that light, um, the invasion of Ukraine was almost a given. And that was, that was the period then when he more aggressively began to move troops and weapons and so forth uh, into, the, into the region. Now, the real question, I think, is, uh, does he stop? And I think the answer I, I probably have already given, and that is no. He wants the borders at the 1997 levels. And as a result, it is our feeling that the war is going to be very long. Uh, in fact, I, I just came back from Europe. I was happy to be there again after two years of not being there. But um, we spent the last couple of months there. And my impression is that there are governments in Europe who are preparing for a very long war, a five to 10 year war. Putin himself, I believe, said the other day he thinks it'll be a five-year war. I, I think this is uh, well known in, in the West. Uh, I, and, the, and the immediate problem is that there are parts of the European structure who are not interested in that. So support for the war is beginning to fragment. In fact, I heard it. I spent the last couple of weeks in Switzerland now, and I, I, I'll give an example. I, one particular client, a good friend, longtime friend, um, family office, met me for breakfast one morning. And I, I know I never sat down. And the guy looked me right in the eye and he said, do you know why your, your, your administration, why your country wants this war? I'll tell you why. And I, did, I couldn't get a word in. And he said, I'll tell you why. Because with a war, America will sell us more weapons. We'll have to buy your gas. And eventually we'll have to buy all your food. That's why. And he crossed his arms and sat back as if, well, take that. <laughs> and it's, you know, I don't think that's an unusual um, feeling that's starting to develop in parts of Europe now is this is a U.S.-Russian war. It's not to be a U.S.-EU or U.S.-NATO war, but in fact, it, it's, it is going to become a U.S.-NATO slash Russian war. And it's going to go on. It's going to be fought in a different way than what, you know, the easy stuff we see is on the news uh, with, you know, howitzers and Russian artillery fighting World War II all over again and just demolishing Ukrainian cities. It's the other parts of how they prosecute the war that are interesting to me. 
how they use food, for instance, how they use their cyber capability. Um, there was a strike unconfirmed. I don't know if it's true that they may have used a, a thermobaric bomb at one point. Would they actually use a tactical nuke? The food, cyber, and especially the energy component of how Putin prosecutes the war, I think is all underway. And it's the natural gas piece in particular, which is becoming more well-known, that is uh, critical to what happens in the next six months. I mean, I'll, I'll give you another example. I didn't have the chart to put in. I'm sorry, but uh, it, they're around. Uh, I was just comparing what's happened with natural gas prices already because of the Russians' uh, reversal of gas flows from time to time into Europe. They're now threatening to turn off uh, some of the gas that's flowed, or maybe all the gas, I'm not sure exactly what they said, but it, that flows into Europe during winter. Um, the Europeans are taking this seriously. The Swiss are already, in fact, when I left, uh, just before I left, I noticed in the uh, the newspaper record actually in Zurich is, is Neue Zürcher Zeitung, and they were talking about the rationing plans that the Swiss government had already been putting in place for winter, where there would be quotas for how much gas you could take down to heat your home, and it's homes that would get the majority of the quotas. And there were other, I think, other categories, probably hospitals, for instance, and some uh, military sites. But there were other uh, parts of the economy which, you know, it, it appeared may not get any any quotas. And this was Switzerland. I mean, in Germany, I think the, pro the problem is probably even more profound. So the graph I was thinking of that I didn't have time to put in was, if you look at power prices, which is which is the end result of a lack of gas flowing into uh, Germany and the rest of Europe from uh, Russia, power prices, for instance, in France, I, that's the graph, are up eight times in the last 18 months, 8x. And in Germany, I think it's about the same. Now, to, to give you an example of what impact that had, uh, it's not, you know, they're never exactly the same, but I went back to 1973-4 in the U.S. when we had the oil crisis, and the price of crude oil ran from 23 to 63, from I think it was April 73 to December of 74. So it was about 150% increase. And, of course, the U.S. and the West went into a, a recession. The idea that power prices across Western Europe, and in particular in the main two economies, uh, the principal two economies on the continent, Germany and France, goes up 8x. And they're somehow not going to have a recession, to me, is just inexplicable. Um, now, this, that's what's coming. And I think it's, uh, I'll, I'll give you another example, uh, might be useful. Because I think this actually ties in with some of what's going on in Asia and China. Um, is the uh, I'll save that one. Let me let me save that one. But, but remind me if I forget about uh, hey, Larry. Just remember, this is a PG audience. Um, we don't want to scare all the women and children. So okay, this is not this is not X rated for fin porn. You got to kind of keep it light, Larry. Don't, you can scare people, but this is R rated, not X rated. Go ahead. <laughs> all right. So. Uh, this all really comes back to the euro, I, I think, George. Um, the euro is touching new lows. It looks to us as a result of the recession that's that they will need to alleviate through euro devaluation. Um, and the same thing will happen with sterling, I believe, uh, versus the dollar. Is If you want to know where the dollar is going to go in the next three to six months, I, I, don't, I, I think the Fed will help the dollar go north 
but I think the Japanese and the uh, ECB and the Bank of England are all going to help the dollar going north by, by driving their currency south. Hey, Larry, 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 let me interrupt for a second, okay? Yeah. So um, the case for the lower euro is obvious. We'll come on to Japan in a second. But what's the administration thinking sitting here watching the dollar going to the moon when, you know, as I call it, the dollar wrecking ball is destroying things in its wake everywhere. It's causing problems in Europe. It's going to cause problems in Asia, emerging markets. What do you think is going on in the minds of the, of the administration? Uh, I think that a number of the policymakers in the administration are true believers in the green agenda. And I don't, I don't have to do anything more than just look at what some of them say publicly on television. Um, it, I'll give an example. The, the uh, head of the Department of Energy, um, who used to be the governor of Michigan, certainly should know something about automobiles as a result. Uh, when she was asked the other day about the price of ga- high price of gasoline in the U.S. and how it could be fixed, her answer was, well, we have to just get over to EVs as fast as we can because once we're driving EVs, I'm paraphrasing now, once we're driving EVs, we don't need all this gasoline. And oil prices can could come down. And I'm sitting here scratching my head wondering how many people in the U.S. can afford, what is it, what's the minimum price on a Tesla, 50, 55 grand, something like that. And right now they can't pay their heating bills and their food bills anyway. And this is the solution. I, I mean, I, I just think there's a, it's not just here in the States. There's a devotion also in, in the EU to this green agenda that, and I'll quote the Daily Mail here from the other day. This is the first time I've seen a uh, widely dispersed media source say this. They were actually talking about the Sri Lankan situation. And what they described was uh, that this was the result of a illiterate economic agenda. And I think that's what this is. I'm, I'm all for, you know, I'm all for not polluting and I'm all for reducing emissions. And I am actually worried about the oceans, but there's no plan that looks at economic reality. And I, what I'm afraid of here is what I'm concerned about. I'm not afraid of it, but I'm concerned is that this has been so poorly thought out on a global scale that it's not going to work. And, and we're going to have some economic disruptions here like we've never seen as a result trying to transition away from a system that worked, a globalized system that worked, to a deglobalized system that doesn't work. Wow. Larry, let's turn just a little bit back to Japan. We'll come, there are a lot of things to get through here. So you and I were talking early this morning, and I made the mention to you how you know, the Japanese currency doesn't move unless there's people want it to move. You know, the, the United States Treasury is in, is in touch with uh, the Japanese authorities. To the extent that you can talk about it or have any opinions, what the heck is going on with the Japanese yen? Well, it's not an accident, as you point out. Uh, MIDI is still very involved in, in setting of where currency is. They go to the Japanese exporters every year, and they, they've set targets for where the yen will trade. Um, I think there's at least two things going on as to why they want to lower yen, and it may not be low enough yet. Uh, one thing I think that they're trying to adjust to is, uh, if you think back two years, uh, the price of oil was actually negative in the spot market, but if you went out the curve, 
you know, you could probably buy oil, as I remember, at $20, $30, $40 a barrel, something like that, if you were buying two years forward. Now, that's what Japan historically has done for years, is it's up to the up to MIDI, the Ministry of Trade and Industry, to determine what demand for oil is in Japan, because they don't have their own. They have to import everything. And then they forward buy that oil in the markets. Now, if I was them, uh, and I'm sitting here two years ago seeing oil prices as low as they were at the beginning of COVID, I would have bought as much oil as I could. And that may well have happened. The problem is now that those contracts and deliveries have run out. And now they're repricing or trying to buy oil forward in a market that has moved significantly higher in a very short period of time. And so their oil bill, their import bill has just gone through the roof. And I think that's part of the reason why they've been printing in is just to pay for their imports, particularly the oil imports. Now, the other problem they have, I think, is more basic, and it's just economic. And that is uh, tied up with China and the slowdown in the Shanghai ports. Um, and I'll, uh, there, I'll give you the example that I, I just hesitated to give anyway. Um, if you go back and look at 2012, uh, the Japanese did the same thing with the yen that they're doing now. They, uh, this was when Abe went into office and started Abenomics, and I believe Kuroda started at the BOJ at the same time. And they devalued the yen dollar from 75 to 125 in, I think it was inside of a year, maybe 18 months. And uh, the stock market bottomed in Japan as a result. Nikkei went from, I don't know, 8 to 16 or 20 or something. But the, the question was, why did, why did Abe do that? Why did he, he and Kuroda organize the devaluation that they did? And, and one of the things they wanted to do was increase growth by increasing exports. But if you actually look at exports during that period, it didn't really have much effect, which made me think that coming just after the European debt crisis and, and relatively close to the GFC, uh, Japan, which is one of the biggest exporters of durable goods in the world, was having trouble selling their product. It was a real simple calculation. So to jumpstart growth, they devalued on purpose the yen. Now we have China, fast forward 10 years, uh, with a locked up port in Shanghai. So here's the example I would offer to you to think about. Um, one of our uh, Friends in Switzerland is a distributor, the exclusive distributor of Japanese machines, a particular type of Japanese machine. I won't give the name of the machine because that's not important. But uh, all their machines are uh, Japanese, but they're manufactured in China. And when I saw him a couple of weeks ago, I asked him, of course, how business was. And he said, well, our sales figures were at a record last year and they're at a record again this year. Our problem is we can't get our machines. Where are you machines? Locked up in the Shanghai port. Can't get them out. And it's not just us. This Japanese company, it appears to me, has one central purchasing and shipping authority in Europe. It's in Hanover, Germany. So what they do is they ship the, uh, the machines into a nearby port, put them on a barge on the Rhine River, float them down to Basel, load them up on a truck, and off they go. And he said they've delivered almost nothing this year not just to Switzerland, but all over Europe. And I said, well, what do you, what do, you do with this? And he said, well, uh, actually, this guy was a former uh, investment manager. He said, last year, I sold everything. Good call. He said, I sold all our stocks. I sold all our bonds. I, I've got everything in liquidity, so I can withstand this for a while. But he said, now I've got employees who are worried that since we can't deliver the machines, do I have a job? And even the central 
authority up in Hanover is telling us we might get a thousand machines out of 5,000 this year. And he, he, he was really worried. And I said, so what's the solution do you think? And he said, well, the solution is, uh, the home, the home company is looking around the rest of Asia to move their production out of China. They're looking at Vietnam and they're looking at the Philippines and there's one more country. I forget which one. Now, this probably is, you know, it's one example, but it's probably not the only example of what the Shanghai port closures have actually done. And this is going to take time. I mean, for them to move that sort of capex, even if they may have to just rebuild from scratch rather than move equipment and, and people aren't going to move out of China to go work in Vietnam. I don't think it'd be allowed. Um, it's going to take one to two, three years to get this process done. And in the meantime, um, you know, I, I, I don't know what they're going to do about the money that these customers have paid but can't get their product. Do they have to give it back? Uh, do they go find another machine, a, a competitor, and buy it? I mean, you can see how disruptive this becomes. And then, you know, so for the Japanese, I think this is what I think is actually happening is it, it may be the beginning of a deglobalization between those two countries. And for Japan, which is a huge supplier of uh, durable goods to the rest of the world, I mean, I don't know what their number is going to be uh, GDP-wise this year, but I'll bet it's negative and I'll bet it's pretty significantly negative. So, yeah, so, so, so Larry, um, let me just jump in here. We got so much room to cover here, and and, and I want to bring the audience in. But let's there's a few more points, topics I want to cover, and then we'll then we'll open up the Q and A. Could you just? We're going to come back to the U.S. market in a second. But before we do that, could you just talk about as long as we're talking about the Asian theater, what's going on in Japan, and by extension, what does that mean for China, and what do you think is going on in China? There's a lot of conflicting cross currents there with concerns about resurgence of COVID, lockdowns. Um, you know, possible uh, changes in party leadership, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, what do you think is going on in China to the extent that you, uh, you know, have any views you'd like to talk about? Well, I, the COVID lockdowns are, are a combination of, come from a combination of factors. One is I think it's partly political. You've noticed until now, most of the lockdowns that were, at least in the media, we're in Shanghai, and it's the Shanghai faction, the Zhang Zemin faction, which has been opposed generally to what she has been doing. That's one point. I think the other point is a healthcare-related uh, policy, which she actually commented on the other day when he said, "How do you allow natural immunity to pass through 1.4 billion people?" I'm I'm paraphrasing him. I mean, you could have you could have basically the whole country sick, and they don't have a healthcare system that's even close to trying to take care of that. So I get that. Uh, politically, I think this, this is going to lead to some realignment. Um, I, you know, the National Party Congress comes up in October, November, I think it's November. And we have noticed a couple things. One is the sort of the reemergence now of Premier Lee, who is very pro-Western, pro-growth, pro-using debt to prop up the property market, pro-corporate. He was against the corporate bashing that took place last this last year of companies like Alibaba. <clears throat> and we've noticed uh, we, we, we're very close followers of China here. Uh, some of the speeches now, he's actually up in public giving speeches about how the Shanghai port problem needs to be fixed and now and how to do it. And it's not it doesn't look like a request to me. These speeches are orders. Now, th you know, these speeches, by the way, were given 
some of them were given several months ago and never surfaced. So something now is changing, I, I think, in terms of what the standing committee might look like in November. You may have some people leave. You may have other people elevated, like Lee, to, um, who have a different agenda. Um, that is, a, it's, it's a different agenda than what she has had. Um, and I think I, I, it's just interesting to me to, to watch. Uh, it's going to be interesting to watch the next five months because Chinese stocks, for instance, I mean, we have an allocation. We've had an allocation now for a couple of months in Chinese tech stocks. And they've done okay. And they actually outperformed the rest of the market. Although I'm not looking for outperformance, I'm looking for absolute performance. And they've done that. Um, but I don't think that will continue if the old style system of uh, just locking up, I mean, they're doing it now. I guess last night they were locking up Macau, um, which was new, and the casinos there. Uh, if they continue to operate this way, I don't think that's possible I, 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 to continue. Uh, nor do I think that. Um, the kind of counter-cyclical policy they've been running monetarily and fiscally is going to continue. So they, they will start to hit the growth button a, a bit. Um, that's why they floated this idea of a $220 billion bond sale uh, a couple days ago. So they're getting closer and closer, like they were in early 2009. If you remember, the Chinese market took off before the U.S. market about by about two, three months uh, before the bottom took off. Right. So let's come back home, Larry. And by the way, for those of you wanting to follow along, uh, I put up in the nest one of the slides, Larry, a few slides from Larry. One was his, his bullet points for what he thinks is happening in the Ukraine, the chart of the dollar, and now we come to the most interesting one. And Larry, you were the one who gave put this idea out a few months ago, and I think I retweeted it a bunch of times, and others have picked up on it. And it concerns what the Fed's up to, and... You know, I've I've heard from numerous credible sources that they're, and I believe it, um, they're hell bent on, on on doing whatever it takes to get inflation down, if it means breaking things. I heard independently from two separate sources, someone who was a friend of James Bullard, they want to take short-term rates to four and a half, and somebody out of Europe told me the same thing. Whether we can ever get there or not is another question. Who knows if something will break? But 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 they mean it. And so, a couple questions. What, based on a you see, you see things because it's all about the Fed now. Let's be real. What do you think is in is in the, the head of the Fed? What are they What are they up to? And then the controversial or not controversial, the interesting uh, slide that you sent to me that I put up in the nest. The idea that each hundred billion of QE, this is a QT, this is napkin math. Each hundred billion of QT is worth you know forty or fifty points on the S and P. And if they take it down by three three trillion, you know, just to start the conversation, that's twelve to fifteen hundred S and P points. Um, you know, doesn't exactly make for a very pleasant outlook for risk assets. So, talk to me a little bit about Fed policy and where do you what do you think the uh, impact of this? You're thinking about what it means for risk assets and equities. Thank you, Larry. Yep, sure. Well, uh, I would I would be a very careful watcher of Aces. Can you hear, Larry? Uh, he went dead on us. Uh, Larry, can't. we can't hear you. All right, Larry, why don't you uh, leave and come back? We can't hear you. I don't know what happened. I got hey, Larry? I got Larry, are you there? Here he is. All right, okay. all right fine. We, we, we lost you for the last. I asked you about the Fed, and we didn't hear any of your answers. Okay, Go ahead, sorry. Larry. Yeah, um, what I was saying was, first of all, just watch Waller, because I think he's simpatico with how, how Powell thinks about these issues. Um, and he's saying things that are very similar to what you just did. Second, uh, 
our understanding is that Powell probably was ready to raise rates a year ago um, and didn't because we were running up against the renomination process and he wasn't assured of being renominated. So the, the process dragged on and then dragged on because they couldn't find somebody else later. And when they finally, by the time they did get him nominated and approved, uh, the horse was out of the barn and it was too late. So the issue now, I understand, is, is he going to be the next Arthur Burns? And no, he's not. I, I do not believe he's going to be the next Arthur Burns. I think he's going to raise rates aggressively as fast as he can, as far as he can. And this is one of the reasons I'm quite sure we're going to have something break here. Uh, because he's in the process, he, he's got naturally weak currencies on the other side of the dollar anyway. And he's now raising rates. And it's not the interest rate differentials that I'm speaking to here. I'm speaking to what the Fed is doing to foreign economies, particularly emerging market economies. They're going to break. And on the other side, I mean, they can't really do much about food. We can get to that if you'd like. But it's the Fed itself that's going to break demand in these other economies. Now, to our own economy and the, and the graph that you put up, um, I've noticed the last couple of days there was a big debate on FT about what effect would uh, uh, QT actually have on the market? So there are all sorts of calculations done about, well, if they do two and a half trillion dollars, Brett, this is one of them, if we do two and a half trillion dollars of 25 basis points of uh, extra uh, rate hikes. Well, I'm not interested in that. I don't even know how you can calculate that. What I am interested in is we have some history on the graph, and that was all the way up from the first QE to the most recent one, every $100 billion that the Fed put on the balance sheet equated to about 40 to 42 S&P points. So percentage terms, early, you know, in early in the cycle, it was worth more. In percentage terms, later in the cycle, it was worth less, but it was still about 40 to 42 points. We have one example on the graph, 2018, where they actually tried a QT. And if you remember, that uh, that fourth quarter of 18, I think the S&P was down 15, 18%, something like that. And the long bond went over three. And all the drawdown involved here, if you look at the graph, was about $400 billion, if I did the calculation right. It was about 4.4 to about but now about four about four trillion to about three point six, I think was the roughly the number. So they had four hundred billion dollars in withdrawal, and the s and p dropped roughly eighty to ninety points per hundred they took out. And that was with, I think, a better liquidity situation then than we have now. I mean, I'm a great fan of looking at Michael Howell's stuff that's that's available on the Twitter. And you look at his liquidity measures, the place that we're starting from here where they intend to actually begin QT, I mean, this this FT article to me is just looking at, at the wrong thing. They're looking at rates. I'm looking at the equity market because if I think at the minimum, if they actually do uh, start to put QT through and they they create even greater illiquidity, I mean, 80 to 90 points per hundred, you, we, could, we could have the S&P down to some number that nobody's thinking about because they've simply made a mistake. They're not, a, they're not, just, they're not just raising rates going into a recession. I actually think we're already in one. Um, they're reducing liquidity at the same time. Wow. All right. So let's just reset the room here. Um, I want to go to questions. We've got Larry Jettelo from TAS Group with uh, just a masterful tour de force here. There's just so many pressure points bubbling up in the world and so many things that can go wrong. Um, 
Larry, uh, you know, is, is prior to TIS Group. If you're interested in Larry's work, you can go to their website, tisgroup.net, or his email address, if you're interested, is larry.jetalo. That's J E D D E L O H. Larry.jetalo, J E D D E L O H. Larry.jetalo at tisgroup.net. Um, you know, it's got a terrific research service. I read it every day. I suggest you likewise. All right, let's go to some questions now. I'd like to first go to uh, Gordon Johnson, and then we're going to do Mark Newman. Gordon, welcome. What's on your mind, Gordon? Hey, George. Uh, thanks for the question. Uh, Larry, thanks for taking the time. I just wanted to get your thoughts on something that I've been thinking about on China. The consensus view amongst a lot of very smart guys I talk to is China can never see a li- liquidity crisis. Um and, you know, clearly there's been bank runs in China. I think there's a total of 13 banks that have frozen deposits. Clearly, you know, guys are um, uh, protesting outside the Bank of China uh, in Xinjiang. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. But to the viewpoint that there isn't uh, the ability of China to have a liquidity crisis, I would make a counter argument. I just wanted your thoughts. And, and the thought is, um, you know, there's a ton of rural and mid-sized banks in, mid-sized banks in China. Um, and when the PBOC injects liquidity, they indeed inject liquidity into the largest in- institutions, but they, they can't dictate how that circulates. And, and nobody knows the needs of the money of the banks in China and which ones are illiquid because they effectively don't tell anybody until people are at their front door. So I wanted your thoughts on if, given those dynamics, you see the potential for a liquidity crisis in China and maybe some of the smart money out there may be overlooking that dynamic. And then I have a follow-up. Yeah, well, I'd like to hear the explanation sometime, Gordon, as to why they think it can't happen. Um, there's been such a misallocation of capital there over the years. that the, the system was so opaque uh, that I think it's very likely, uh, not, not so much in the larger firms, but to your point, the mid-size, maybe the smaller-size banks, the, the products, the, I mean, we know that some of the financial products that were basically missold over the years um, and the government had to help make good, uh, and I think is that's part of the answer. The other part of the answer, I think, is look at their behavior now. Um, one of the things uh, Mr. Hunt, our China guy, has been doing for us is kind of running down, uh, and they're the leader in this. Why is China trying to build an alternative currency system to the dollar? Why, why have they accumulated, he believes, 40,000 tons of gold, Russia 12,000 tons of gold? Why are they talking through the Shanghai Cooperation Council about setting up an alternative currency system to the dollar with four other countries, basing it on a metal or a metals that these countries primarily export? Um, why have they already gone to the Saudis, which I think they did already a couple of years ago, and they worked a deal where they could pay for oil? in Chinese yuan. They had to back it with gold, but they did. You see what they're doing? They're, they're getting away from the dollar. And the, the question is why? What, why are they doing this? And, and I think it's because they're, uh, they, in fact, may well have a liquidity problem here. And, you know, they don't, they, they've only been in, the, in a free-flowing capital world. I mean, just, let's look at, look at some other behaviors. Look at how they floated some of these companies in New York and, and the, the number, I mean, the data, the information was just wrong. And they knew it. I think I had to, I have to believe that they knew it, but they did it anyway. They just, they're not used to the system working. So I, I'm of a different view than some of the people you're probably talking to. I, I think it's absolutely possible that that could happen, that you could have a liquidity problem. And in fact, 
if I was on the other side of that in a war game, um, I would find a way to exploit that weakness that they have. Yeah. Can I, can I second that? I mean, uh, the Chinese have been incredibly short U.S. dollars. They have to import all their energy. They have to import their food. Yep. Uh, so it, it hurts them to be reliant on, uh, and not to mention they don't exactly love us here in the United States. So it's in their strategic best interests to try and reduce their reliance on the dollar. Uh, but it also, you know, for them to take out the dollar as a reserve currency, that actually isn't in their best interest because they rely on exports to uh, the world's biggest consumer importers. 70% of our economy is imports. It would, cr- it, would, it would be a big hit to their economy as well. Uh, if the U.S. dollar were to say collapse or be replaced, but with the digital one and the increasing authoritarianism and in, in turn, like you know, kind of when things are are looking shaky, as they are in China, and you're Xi Jinping, you go, all right, like let's close those information channels, let's like become more insular, keep things controlled, so that we don't lose, so the Communist Party can survive. Thanks, th- thanks, Emma. So, Gordon, do you have a follow-up? And then I want to go to Mark Newman. Gordon, do you have a follow-up question? Yeah, um, I guess just two, two, two real quick. I'll try to work them in. Um, keeping with China, um, Larry, I wanted to get your thoughts on if you think a liquidity crisis is inevitable. And there was this statistic put out by, um, I forget the guy's name, on, on Twitter yesterday where he highlighted, you know, there's been 91 company uh, Chinese property developers downgraded by Moody's this year alone. Whereas over the past decade combined, that number is 54. You also consider that, you know, the bulk of the Chinese banks um, liabilities are, are loans to the, the property sector. Yep. And then you also to the point, right, Lee, Lee uh, their, their vice premier has been talking about a great rhino for years. So I, I guess the question is, do you think uh, a, 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 a crisis is inevitable and do you think we're currently in one? And you know what, I'll, I'll, I'll save the next the, the last question for, for next time. Thank you. Well, I think we're entering a global liquidity crisis. Um, China will be part of that, but I'm not sure that they're the driver. Not not at this point. In fact, I think they've 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 publicly said they may be wrong, but they think the yuan has gone low enough and their economy has bottomed out. Now, actually, somebody asked me yesterday that you know what what's the real GDP number in China? I have no idea. I mean, they might say two, they might say three, they might say plus five. I think it's actually negative but I don't know how deep it is. And that's, that's part of the problem. So answering your question, Gordon, about, you know, is it inevitable? I don't think we know enough. I don't feel like I know, and we know a lot, I, but I still don't think we know enough about how the Chinese would react to um, a banking crisis now, a domestic banking crisis, for me to say that, that it's either inevitable or not inevitable. I just, I'm just watching their behavior, and it's... it's um, it's it's marked by one where I wouldn't be surprised at all if there was a political change this year and a policy change, but later in the year. Thanks, Larry. Thanks, Gordon, for the question. Let's go to Newman and then the on-deck circle. We got KFAB. Newman, what's up, my friend? Hey, how are you? Uh, I have two questions. The first one, I'm just going to stick to the current here, uh, liquidity. And uh, Emma made a great point. And I was just curious, and I've had this discussion with some others, the U.S. dollar is – the DXY up 50% or down 50%, which is of greater consequence for the global macro soup? That's the first question, pretty simple. 
Well, not simple, but pretty straightforward question. <laughs> not simple. That's not a simple one. You're no, right. not at all. I just, <laughs> I meant it was only like a 20 word question. <laughs> the answer is probably longer. Anyway, I'd love to hear that. And then I have one more after. Sorry. Yeah, sure. This is like the one I got yesterday of whether uh, oil at 500 or oil at 900, what's different? <laughs> Nothing's different. It doesn't matter. Um I mean, I can't see plus 50 or minus 50. I can't see plus, I cannot see plus 50. Uh, minus 50 over some period of years, maybe, uh, but not in the short run, Not maybe not even in the intermediate term. Short run, I mean, one of the graphs I sent, George, was DXY looks to us like it is going to run up to about 115, 120. And that's enough. Just a 7 to 10% number is probably enough to crack the EMs and have a, some kind of a crisis, a financial crisis, maybe in Europe. Maybe it's in European banks this time. Almost certainly it's in the EM markets. So we don't have any exposures. We haven't had any exposures in either of those areas for years. Um, but, you know, whether it's plus 50 or minus 50, uh, plus 50 would seem to me to open up a whole new range of possibilities. One is that there's the currency realignment in the world would be done. And if it's minus 50, uh, you'd have a rodeo of currency trying to compete to become the new reserve currency. So I, I think you'd have different options. I'd have to think about it. It's actually a very good question. So uh, let me let me think about that. And if you want to send me an email, I'd, I'd like to come back to you. Yeah, I, I would about, do that. I hadn't but... thought about the range being that wide. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's sort of the, 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 the powder keg that we're all sort of like almost the elephant in the room that we're all watching. But we can, we can continue this later. I wanted to talk one other thing a little more generally and get your thoughts. So I've done a, a, a massive deep dive into ESG and uh, I, I'd love to chat more about this some other time because I'm starting a new business in this line. But anyway, the constraints on capital are sort of the cause or the result. I Well, the, the yeah, the, the I guess constraints on capital skew risks, misallocation, mal misallocation of capital, malinvestment. And we see this uh, in the recent term, right, energy and fossil fuel. And the guy who took advantage of the ESG policies on the EU and, 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 and the malinvestment and the constraints on nuclear and fuel was a guy by the name of Vladimir Putin. He basically said, thank you. You've yeah. undervalued those industries. And yeah. those, are, those are great to me. What I see going on in the world now, Sri Lanka, all these other places, is you know, partially to me, or more than partially, due to these constraints on capital. And I wondered where you think this ends because to me, I created this index, this ESG orphans index, which is all the exclusions of ESG of the past decade. And it seems like they're all digging their heels in on arguably the dumbest plan energy wise in, in, uh, in my lifetime. And I'm sure others would say, so I wondered your thoughts on the extensive constraints on capital that are causing massive risk in around the globe. Well, I think the next one is food. Um, I mean, I can give you a few examples of just things I've heard. I mean, I'm out in the Midwest. We live in the Twin Cities when I'm here. So we have a lot of farmland around here. And I've had farmers tell me this year they're buying less fertilizer because they can't afford it. Well, less fertilizer means less yield. Lower yield means higher prices. So it's, you know, it's a real straightforward proposition. In Sri Lanka, they tried to go to organic farming apparently overnight. <laughs> and so now their whole country's blown up. 
as a result. And and I think there's it just there's a whole chain of things that happen. I think they're selling some of their gold because they need that to pay their bills. We've had riots. You've had. I mean, you look at the pictures of what's going on in Sri Lanka. It makes the January sixth thing in the states look like a party. I mean, they've actually thrown people out of office. And I mean, I think this is food to me is really interesting. I'm getting a lot of questions, by the way. This may be helpful now from institutional people who are looking for how to invest in this, invest in food. And it's not easy um, because I think the real way to invest it is a way I don't want to invest. And that is, I think there are going to be large food importing countries, primarily poor ones, whose economies are simply going to blow up in the next six to 12 months because they can't either can't afford the price of food they're importing or they simply run out of money. And their bond markets, Egypt is a good example. If you look at the Egyptian uh, bond market, it's just starting to come apart. I mean, if, if you're really a, um, an aggressive investor and don't mind doing this, you know, the, the, those bonds will blow in those countries. And it's really food that's, that's driving it. Uh, so I, you know, going back to the, the original question you asked about food, um, I don't think the energy play is over either. And so it's going to continue to, to cycle back into food. This is early. I mean, I, my, I, I fully agree short run. I think oil does come down and I, I took out my oil positions except for two of them. Um, but I had a lot, uh, over a month ago and I'm looking to go back in because I think at some point, um, the geopolitics are going to catch up with, with oil again. And it, it has to do with the, geo, the uh, again, with who owns the, who owns a real asset. And I, I mean, I maybe I better stop there cause I'm going to get off the track, but if you want to come back to the middle East, I'm happy to talk about that a bit in Biden's trip, but yeah, I mean, this all circles back. I mean, I've got oil going to a new high at some point, which means food prices are very likely to follow. And, and it's, you know, we, we, could have, we could have avoided all this. I think when we're all sitting here in five years looking backwards, none of this had to happen. Right. Th- thanks, Eric. That's great. I mean, it, it's funny. Mark's a good friend, and seemingly it's always those, it's always those seemingly simple questions. Which are the most difficult to answer? Nice, yeah. nice trick, nice trick, Newman. I, I do that stunt all the time. All right, let's go to KFab, and then after KFab, we're going to go to Guy Sorandulo. KFab, my friend, what's up, man? Hey, George. Thanks. Uh, hi, Larry. Um, actually, you teed me up with your your transition to the the Middle East, and it, it's not necessarily an oil question. I have it's more related to, um, and it sounds like you're probably in the same camp I am. My base case move has moved towards uh, kind of. Uh, severe synchronized global recession is where we're heading. Mm-hmm. And, and if that's the, the scenario, um, you know, the, the naivete with what the foreign policy pivot under Obama and kind of a lesser degree with um, uh, Biden's administration relative to Iran. Um, and they're, they're the one true believer uh, kind of crazy regime. <laughs> um and 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 we, we've kind of passed the the windows of of the vacuums from the Soleimani uh, assassination and and even the assassination of the by the um, the Israelis of the nuclear scientists. We're kind of re-entering a window where you know probably in a hot zone as far as the, them acting up. So what, what? How do you think about all of that within the context of a realignment? And and you know I know it's a crazy term, but you know with with Russia. And, and um, China 
and the fault lines kind of being driven here that this could turn into something that's far more expansive in, in the next two, three years um, relative to a, a, a wider um, geopolitical conflict? Um, well, I don't think it's going to take two or three years. I, I, I just, just to talk for a minute about uh, the administration's visit that uh, they've just, I think they just left today. Um, part of the problem between the U.S. and the Saudis, of course, was what the new administration said about the Saudis when they entered office. They called, you know, the Saudis a pariah state and they called the uh, MBS a killer. And, uh, you know, that may be accurate, but you got to get along with people as well. And that's not a way to get along with them. And they took great umbrage at this. They did other things as well. Uh, during the Trump administration, the U.S. had sold the UAE, who work very, very closely now. There are three countries really working closely now on that side of the Persian Gulf. It's the Saudis, the UAE, and, and Israel. And we had sold the UAE um, F-35s. And the Biden administration pulled those sales. The other thing they did was we had some Patriot missile systems, I believe it was in Saudi, and we pulled those. So we called the Prince a killer, the country a pariah. We pulled out of we pulled our Patriots out and we've canceled F-35 sales. So no wonder they won't take our phone call. On the other side of the line, I call it the scrimmage line through the Persian Gulf, you have the Chinese making massive oil investments in Iranian oil and gas, and you have the Russians uh, who are also helping with arms sales. In fact, <laughs> it ran in reverse yesterday. I saw the Iranians were going to start selling drones to Russia. Um, but the reason I'm, I'm it actually came through um, one of our colleagues out there. Uh, the reason I'm really concerned now about what's happening is, I mean, I can't remember in my lifetime an American president having to go there to get a deal. Just think about that for a minute. And I don't think he's going. I don't think Biden's actually going to get the Saudis to pump more oil. I, I think capacity-wise, they may be exactly what what they were told of the G7, UAE and, and the Saudis may be at capacity for the time being. And there just is no spare capacity to speak of. What I think he may be, go, why, why they may be going is uh, you have some of the same people in the prior administration, the Obama administration, who worked on Iran Deal 1, who are now working on Iran Deal 2. And I think the Saudis have basically called um, time out on working with the U.S. unless this stops. And it's because at the same time, I mean, I, what we believe is that the Iranians now are very close to having the enrichment done, which enables them to build a bomb. Now, the Israelis are not going to sit still for this. I don't believe. I've never believed that. And if they act, if they act, they probably will act alone. But let me let me just read you one line here. Um, because this is preparations. It, it came in, in, in a report one of our guys wrote for me here. And it, he's talking about the Middle East and these developments. And he said, Iran and Russia are in talks to shut the Straits of Hormuz in the near future. This would cut off 22 million barrels of oil per day, or 22% of the world's supply, and nearly 4 trillion cubic feet of Qatari natural gas, or 30% of the world's supply. Now, why would they do this? And he gave me two reasons. He said, one, you might remember it in the Ukraine war, uh, the uh, flagship, the Russian flagship was sunk, the Moskova. And he said, he said Putin, for some reason, had a particular affinity for the ship. And uh, he said NATO sunk it. Actually, NATO didn't sink it. I think NATO gave him the coordinates and a Ukrainian missile sunk it. But the point is, we sunk it. 
and he's he wants to get even. And the second reason is, he said, um, would be an Israeli strike on Iran. I mean, I don't know how to price that into oil, but it ain't down. And I, I know there was another uh, report circulating around, I think it was last week, that talked about oil going to 380 or something. I don't know what the right number is, but I'll tell you what, if I see oil at 80 again or 70, I'm going for it. I'm going for the producers and I hope this is all wrong, but I fear it isn't. Larry, 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 I have to interrupt you. I'm just listening here to you go on for, you know, last hour or so. And I got a knife out and think about slitting my wrists. And then well, I turn and then I, your health. then I turn on bubble vision and you get some talking head from bulge bracket firm. Well, hi, yeah, you know, the economy's slowing down. And this is good because this means the Fed will have to raise rates. And we have S&P earnings of 240. And, you know, at 3,800 on the S&P, that's only a 16 times multiple, which is a discount to the long-term average. So we're constructive here on equity. I mean, what type of universe are these people? What type of world are these people living in? It's just like, uh, I want to blow my brain out. I'm sorry. Sorry to rant. Let's keep moving here. Um, Emma, do you have a quick, Emma, do you have a quick one? Because I want to go to Guy Serendulo. Yeah. One, Emma? Yep. We need more impersonations from you, George. That's all. <laughs> 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 all right. All right. We're going to go to my friend Guy Serendulo, and then we're going to go to Def Profit, and then we're going to go to Deer Point. Guy, good to hear from you. What's up, man? Uh, hey, George. How are you? Uh, Larry, great to hear your voice. Um, hey, Guy. To all. Yeah. I really miss our one-on-ones uh, from many years past, but uh, I, I could sit back and listen to you for hours. And um, just the array of topics are always phenomenal. One of our last one-on-ones when I was at Wellington, I still remember it clearly. We talked about uh, property in London. I don't want to get into detail, um, but you were, t- you were telling me that because of the big you know, influx of, of foreigners, the social fabric of some of these wealthy areas was changing. I'm just curious, is that um, continuing in a big way? Uh, f- first as a question. And secondly, if you had to pitch a tent in the next three, four, five years, any state in, uh, any state and city in the U.S., where would it be? And also as ex-U.S., where would it be? I'm, I'm just curious what your thoughts on, on that. The guy, of course, is asking for a friend. Go ahead, Larry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and actually, I, I wanted to say, uh, George, you have my report from this morning, but page 10, the dollar target, you, DXY, lines up with what Larry just said. I have 121. He has 120. Guy, guy, so I, anyway, it's... Uh, guy, guy I, I hate it when a, when a technical analyst gets in gear with a fundamental call. Oh, yeah. Like, anyway, we're, it's in, tru- we're in trouble. Okay. Right, Larry, what's up? Go Thanks. for it, Gary. <laughs> uh well, I left London in 2020 just before COVID guy gave the house up, and I was glad I did. Okay. Um, it's interesting that we, we're looking at going back, and uh, I'm dragging my feet uh, mm-hmm. because I think things have changed a lot there. Uh, it's it's a different city in some I – was, I was just back for about three weeks, you know, visiting people, and um, it's still a great city, but, it, you know, even though Sterling is lower and lower and lower and lower and – the costs have just gone up. I mean, it's just still, even for an American, it's still very expensive. So I don't know if we'll end up there or not. Switzerland is a place I would end up. I'd be happy to go back to Zurich and live. Um, anywhere else in the world, I haven't I haven't found a good place to pitch a tent. If it was in the States, guy, I think it'd probably be Tennessee. 
All right. Thanks, Larry. We're now going to uh, Def Profit and then uh, Deer Point. Def Profit, what's up, man? Uh, <clears throat> hi, everybody. Um, I'm just want to ask um, Larry if he been following uh, central bankers on the IMF conferences, which have taken place like two or three of them already. And on these conferences, they basically say in plain English that from their view, globalization is likely over and uh, uh, countries and current trading blocks should realign supply chains because it's obviously that they these supply chains cha chains are very vulnerable. So I, I actually I don't believe that these guys are really stupid like Lagarde and uh, Kuroda and uh, well Paul is another is another animal. So uh, if they want to move production from China to Europe back and uh, to strengthen Japan, they should devalue currency to make at least uh, labor costs lower. Mm -hmm. So, um, and these guys, they're just telling you that. Have, mm -hmm. have, you, have you noticed that? Oh, yeah, I have seen that. Thank, thanks for the comment. Uh, just another, uh, maybe a bit of information to help you. Um, I, I was talking to George earlier today about, about this. Back when we had the great inflation in the States in 7980, uh, you know, the, the, the lore today, the, the story is that Volcker broke it. Volcker broke it by raising rates and he rose them high enough or raised them high enough to finally break inflation. And we had 40 years of disinflation. That never really quite sat with me. Um, and so I, we started looking around. And one of the things we found was that in 2005, Greenspan actually said, that the factor that actually broke inflation and created the disinflation was globalization. That we were right at the point after the 73, 74 oil uh, crisis where supply lines started to be built out, different kinds of container ships were being built, trade agreements were being done. So there was a kind of confluence of factors where people, be countries began to build out uh, a globalized world. You think about it, we're now going the other way. We're now just start to your point. Now we're just starting to deglobalize. So if globalization was in fact, and I think that's, you know, just let me divert here for a second. Why is the U.S. all of a sudden dropping sanctions and, and talking about dropping tariffs? They want the Shanghai port open. Why? Because they think they can get the goods out, bring, you know, bring Walmart toys and everything else, Walmart and the rest of the retail sector in the U.S. imports from China. They want it here. And they want that. They think that'll help bring prices down might temporarily, but over time, uh, they're going to have to bring that production back closer to home. And when they do, this is reverse disinflation. It's very inflationary. And this is why I think the inflation environment in the States, if we get down to five, six, I think that's the low. That's the environment we're going to be in because we now are in the early stages of exactly what those guys at the central banks are talking about. And that is uh, you, countries are going to actually encourage their, their major companies to bring manufacturing back. Yeah, and the uh, second observation. So, um, if we speak about, so United States is not as much connected to Russia as Europe, but United States is very dependent on China. It was even called Ch China America. I think that was the term like several years ago mm -hmm. uh, on the supply side. And 70% of the US is consumer economy. So, Basically, United States economy is dependent on China a lot. 
And these actions by China, by uh, locking supply chain, uh, is hitting U.S. consumer directly. Mm-hmm. And what Putin is doing with Europe, because Europe is not depending on... Uh, um, it depends on China, but it's uh, mostly depends on Russia for energy. And that's because of Germany um, uh, compromised and uh, corrupted strategy. So these two countries out of nowhere in 2020 and then 2022 started to like impose their leverage on two main economies in the world like uh, united states and european union and it doesn't look like a coincidence for, for, for me it looks like economic weapon i missed the last sentence you said could you repeat it doesn't look like a coincidence. It looks like oh. an economic offense. Oh, no, of course not. No, I, we've uh, actually, that's something we've been writing about here for, for quite some time is it's a coordinated effort across. It not, it's not just energy cooperation. It's trade. It's security. It's cyber. It's the development of this alternative currency. Um, and Russia, you know, during the early stages of the, of the war, they were getting replacement parts from China for vehicles for instance, and um, that supply line has ebbed and flowed a bit, but I think it's still, you know, it's still ongoing. So China's still a supplier to Russia in, in the war effort in Ukraine, and, you know, we all know the offset to that has been they can acquire Russian oil at, still at very large discounts. So it works both ways for them. But I don't, you're, you're on the right track, I think. This is not just an accident. Uh, it's not an accident. It's Thanks, Larry. Let's... That's great. Let's move on, Larry. Uh, got a lot of great speakers, a lot of smart, really smart people here. We're going to do Deerpoint, and then we're going to do Benjamin, and then we're going to do Nancy. So Deerpoint, good to see you. What's up, man? Hey, thanks, George. Um, Larry, sorry to take you back to the food uh, kind of crisis. Um, one thing that I haven't heard people speak a lot about, and, and David Rosenberg put out a piece on this, that uh, by 2030, the demand for water should outstrip supply by about 40%. Um, I didn't know if you had any thoughts on this or how this could even play into um, further deterioration in, in any sort of food crisis, especially in emerging markets. Thank you. Uh, thanks for that. I had not heard that. Um, I am beginning to wonder, being in the U.S. and just looking at what's going on in the southwest part of the country, and we've looked at some drought statistics. I mean, you know, the obvious stuff is what happens to the, the California Valley and fruit and vegetable, but the droughts, the droughts moving to the east. So I, I don't know if it'll be 2030 or whatever the number is, but for emerging markets, if we have a drought uh, period and, and water demand exceeds supply, I mean, we're going to have it's not too hard to figure out. I mean, we're, we're going to have massive evidences of, or instances of, uh, well, starvation, I suppose. All right. On that happy note, we go from one cheerful question to the next. So we're going to do Benjamin and then Nancy and then Jackson. Benjamin, what's up? Hi, Larry. Uh, pleasure to speak with you. It's been a while. I don't know if you remember, you were a frequent speaker at my prior firm, Battery March Financial. Uh, oh. through Tom Linkus. Sure. And yes. um, and so it's been a while since I've actually heard you speak, so it's a pleasure to hear you on, on Spaces. Um, so, Larry, what you frequently brought up at, at our prior meetings that has always stuck with me is this notion that capital goes to where it's best treated. And you kind of held out Singapore as an example of that. 
Um, but I'm wondering, we're seeing more and more capital controls being implemented, like in China, mm-hmm. or now um, possibly being explored or, or, or implemented um, from what we're seeing maybe in Europe. Do you kind of still hold to this idea that capital, global capital can still be fluid, uh, especially if we're seeing more and more countries and regimes resort to capital controls? Yeah, thanks for the question. I, I think that's the trend. That's right. We'll see more and more controls as um, primarily the ability to fund bond markets erodes. Uh, however, I have been on the lookout. Think That's actually a very good question. I think some country, I don't know where it is yet, and actually this is where I would pitch my tent to answer Guy's question more directly. There's going to be some country that's going to get a bright idea of having no or low taxes, being energy self-sufficient, being technologically advanced, making it easy for entrepreneurs to come in to get residents. Um, you know, it's not hard. Somebody's going to figure this out. I don't. I just don't know who it is yet. Um, that's where what I would pitch think? my tent. Real quick, but, what do you think about the UAE Dubai? Well, that's where one of our colleagues, Simon, lives now. He loves it. He says everything works. They're very pragmatic. They have a 20-year 20 20 plan uh, to grow the economy. He, he's he's perfectly happy out there after living in England his whole life and China. He was in China for about 25 years. That, that could be. That could be one of the spots if you can take the heat. You know, you can't get yeah, everything. Not a, not a tent, maybe, but. No. <laughs> An air-conditioned tent. There you go. All right, let's move on. Um, who's next? Uh, we got Nancy and then Jackson. Hey, Nancy, what's going on? Hey, uh, good afternoon, everyone. Um, I would just, uh, I would say one thing that's top of mind is uh, the consumer price index uh, data is going to be released tomorrow morning. Um, that has data covering the June time period. Um, a lot of people are talking about this uh, bullwhip effect with this, uh, the rise in inventories with the economy weakening and pulling prices down. So um, the consensus number for tomorrow is 8.8% annual rise in the headline number. So we'll see uh, what comes out. I know uh, there was a good conversation earlier in the spaces about the Fed hiking rates and Pal trying to be more like Volcker um, versus, uh, uh, you know, continuing to not acknowledge inflation. I think the one thing that I've been a little frustrated with with the commentary is the Fed generally like Pal, you know, mostly to blame. You know, he's really refused to acknowledge the link between the money supply. Um, and we've had a growth in the money supply of greater than 40 percent and inflation. Um, it seems like all the talk is really about inflation only in the terms of uh, supply and goods and attacking the demand side of the equation. And uh, I feel like they're not really talking at all about, you know, it, obviously it was in response to uh, to COVID, which is, you know, uh, a horrible, you know, thing that's happened to us. But they're, there's no responsibility on trying to solve anything other than the demand side. So, you know, I think what we're seeing right now in the rates market is the Rates market does believe that the Fed is going to um, hike rates. Um, we have, let me just pull up my monitor, my Bloomberg monitor. I see another 177 basis points of additional hikes priced in just this year. So think about that. It's like five and a half months um, through the end of 22. And I think um, 
obviously, uh, with all the dollars that we printed over the last few years, um, and QE, you know, just, you know, just stopped on June, June one, the first bond maturity was uh, June 15th for the treasuries, all that money is still trying to find a home. So I would just say, you know, don't, don't, uh, you know, I think a lot of people are going to be watching CPI, but it's just, it's backward dated data. It's all about year over year change, we might see a bullwhip effect. And, the other point is a third of the uh, the calculation is shelter, which they calculate the Bureau of Labor Statistics calculates as owner occupied rent. So don't get too hung up either way with whatever the number is, is my two cents. Thank you. Nancy, um, I know Go you ahead. don't like to put real quick too much. Um, I know you don't pay attention too much to the euro dollar futures market, but I would imagine that it would be uh, somewhat aligned to what you're looking at um, in the interest rate futures markets. Um, do you, where do you see, do you see a cut coming in at some point on your terminal? Yes, I do. Um, the rates market has priced in that the Fed is going to be uh, hiking 177 basis points more this year. So in the next five and a half months, it's in addition to the 150 that they've already hiked. I think that's probably pretty high to, you know, I definitely see them going another 75 or so, but going into midterms in November. And then the rates market has also priced in, um, 44 basis points of cuts. So saying they're going to hike, you know, 177 more this year uh, to bring policy rates above 3% and then cutting rates 44 basis points in 23. So um, there are a lot of different ways you can see what's in, but I do think um, simply using Fed fund futures is a, is a very clean way uh, to look at it versus um, the euro dollar contracts, in my opinion. But people look at it both ways. I think it's all it's important to watch all markets and see what's priced in. Yeah, I just, I just wanted to get to see if the general idea, if you sure. you were seeing the same thing. And, yeah, uh, up, 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 and then down. <laughs> it's gotcha. a, like a roller coaster. <laughs> hey, hey, Nancy, can I ask you one follow-up? Is anything look out of whack to you? Like, any, see any mispricings or opportunities? Markets too bullish, too bearish or anything? Or... Are there no real nails standing up right now now to be hammered down? Well, credit is one thing I would just caution people about. You know, bonds have obviously had a really, you know, everything in the bond market is down in 22. But a lot of that move is from interest rates, not from credit spreads moving wider. So I just say, you know, we really haven't had like a credit crisis at all. Credit spreads are not really widening. If you look at things like the investment grade bond index about, you know, almost a little over 75% of the sell-off in price terms is all from interest rates, not credit spreads. So just say, be careful with, you know, you know, very simply, if you own equities and then you own uh, those same corporate bonds with credit spread risk, it's kind of the same thing. So I, I personally think it's a better risk reward to have, um, you know, equities in your portfolio and then inflation protected bonds you know, obviously I'm biased because I'm the portfolio manager for the eyeball ETF, but I don't think they're very expensive. Um, you know, the the 10-year break-even, which is where it's just CPI inflation, but it's only at 2.32%, which I think is surprising to a lot of people because we have realized inflation at 40-year highs, but future inflation expectations are not very high. So personally, I would say flip, you know, I'm not giving financial advice, but I know um, I would be careful with credit and look to add some inflation protected bonds or inflation strategies uh, because it's 
market really believes that these Fed hikes are going to cool inflation. Yeah, so, so, so Nancy, let me, let me, we always like to, I mean, it's been great, by the way, since you've been in spaces the last month, too. I've learned a lot from you. So let me, let me assume my rightful place is just a dumb equity guy. So I listen to Larry. And I'm 100% in alignment with Larry's views. The world's full of risk. A lot of stuff can go wrong. My highest conviction is we are entering an earnings we are entering an earnings bear market, and that equities continue to represent return-free risk. And there's just so many things that can go wrong right now. And so I sit here and I think about credit. And yeah, spreads have moved up, but in historical context, I can go a hell of a lot higher from here. And you know, fixed income not my thing credit's not my thing but i'm like wait a second spreads can go a lot higher if, if history's any guide and then as you just pointed out the market you know long-term inflation expectations have been very well anchored only whereas there's 2.3 percent so i'm sort of like well wait a second i'm not sure i believe that but like the idea of that that, that, that that's going to be too high like that i don't believe that for a second so i think the markets assume the best about inflation expectations coming down and at the same time, I think credit spreads have a lot higher to go. So this is just through the mindset of a dumb equity guy, all right? I like simple questions. So I look at it, and I don't really understand what you do. I don't know where to find the symbols. I mean, I'm teasing you, okay? Like, but I couldn't find a Q-sip or a ticker symbol for any of the stuff you trade in, all right? But I just look at it common sense as a dumb equity guy. And I'm like, I don't want to own anything that you tra- trade in. I'm, I'm teasing you, Nancy. Okay, so like, explain to me, like, what am I missing here? Like, what's wrong about the way I'm thinking about it? I don't. I don't think there's anything wrong with the way you're thinking about it, George. Um, you know, I think uh, inflation is hard to see, right? It's the rates market. It didn't exist in the '70s. Uh, even the credit derivatives markets didn't really start till the end of 2004. So I think the problem is, is a lot of people don't really know how to look at things like the interest rate markets because it's more institutional, whereas equities are easy to see because there's, you know, tickers, there's market data. So don't be frustrated at all that you can't see it. That's part of the reason that we created, you know, Ival to give a, a way to access, you know, inflation expectations outside of just CPI, but even something as simple as where break-evens are, not not obvious uh, for a lot of people. There are There are a lot of great public resources that I've tried to put, you know, I've been on Twitter since uh, May 6th, and I've been trying to put things in so people can see them more, but it is, it is hard. It is challenging, but I agree with your, your premise. The, the fundamental, what you're saying is like, if you're going to take corporate risk, you know, do it in equities, not credit, because credit spreads really haven't widened at, at the end of the day. If you have, you know, it's just a different part of the capital structure, right? If you have, you know, simple example, I don't know, I'm talking on my Apple phone. If you own Apple stock and Apple bonds, you know, you got the same corporate beta, right? Um, so it's um, an inflation expectations in the future are incredibly low. And I think, you know, the basic premise, whether you're an equity guy or a bond guy or a rates person, it doesn't really matter. In all asset classes, in all markets, you know, fear and greed that drives markets and you want to buy low and sell high. And the thing I'm trying to emphasize, you know, simply as I can, is that future inflation expectations are not very high, even though realized inflation is very high. So it could be an opportunity. Correct me if I'm wrong, George, but you you were saying that the equities were looking like the uglier one to be in, not 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 the uh, 
No, I, no Emma, I'm just saying that, look, equity is a junior in the capital structure, okay? So I think credit spreads are going to widen. And given that, you know, inflation, and on top of that, inflation expectations maybe maybe realize as in the out years will come down to what to what people are expecting, but it's already there. So I'm kind of like looking at equities, a junior capital structure. It's not a question of I want to go buy credit. No, I don't want to buy anything. I'm just saying I listened to Nancy talk about credit spreads got room to widen out. And at the same time, inflation expectations long term be relatively anchored. I'm already bearish enough in equities as it is. But considering how equities are junior in the capital structure, I listen to her and it's like, I want to go back to slitting my wrists. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> so I think, I think maybe, Nancy, what you're talking about, too, also, is like a lot of it's been duration that's been driving things, or maybe even tough, Nancy. <laughs> Anything further to say about uh, like, Emma, Emma, I think she made it very clear. It's like, yeah, most of the move in bonds in, in credit's been because of cause duration, because um, yields, because uh, inflation expectations have, have, have been anchored. But spreads have really got a lot further to go. So I don't know. All roads. In my view, don't listen to me. It's not financial advice, but listening to Nancy talk, it just solidifies my bearish view on equities. I, I, I think Nancy's been pretty clear in what she thinks about credit markets. I, I don't know. Hey, George, can I ask Larry a question before we lose him? I, I don't know how much time he's got left. Well, yeah, yeah, go for it. Go for it. He says, yep. Okay, Larry, my God, yes, I, I don't think I've ever met a person who's touched on more topics and answered more questions and leaving me with even more questions than you answered. I just, your presentation was absolutely genius. Thank you. Um, I'm an emerging markets guy for the better part of the last 12, 14 years. I live in the Congos and, you know, the jungles and stuff from in the mining industry. Um, And I've seen the Chinese basically dominate the worldwide global resource chain in every country, basically. Um, including America. And um, and I'm just curious about something. I'm sitting in a third world country now. Um, um, my, my question is this. If this ever more increasingly more popular BRICS now, alternative payment system, gets traction, what's to stop the Kenyas, the Congos, the... The, the, the Guyanas, the, all of these, the Chiles, the Perus, all of these countries that basically China has a suction cup over the top of these places, just taking everything out of there they can, right? And, and then, and then if, if something like that was to happen, you know, is the reserve status, the dollar reserve status, does, does it become questionable? Don't all those countries buy U.S. government treasuries, keep them on account for liquidity purpose to clear soft, you know, commercial banking transactions and all that stuff? I mean, could we really be really obviously the very first step is obviously not to go from where we are today to losing reserve status. I mean, I get that. It's a huge jump. But would it move by bricks and then a mass adoption to all these trading countries? shifting over there could we see some real sovereign risk in america from something like that and thank you very much in advance you are just fabulous thank you well uh this is a really touchy subject um 
put yourself in the place of the Chinese and the Russians for the moment. You're, you're basically at war with NATO. It's an undeclared war. But the Chinese, and, and you know, just focusing on the Chinese for a minute as part of that war, they, they publicly say they are in favor of a multipolar world. Do I believe that? No, I don't. I think their behavior suggests quite the opposite. So at some point, and it may be a very long time frame, um, I would think that if I was running the strategy from their side of the ship, uh, the target would have to be, one of the main targets would have to be control of not just trade, but the means of trade, which is the currency and the banking system or the transaction system, whatever it is at that point. So I don't think you're wrong to, uh, you know, a number of things you said are absolutely spot on. All those countries you mentioned, uh, I haven't looked at everyone, but I'm pretty sure everyone does have some level of treasuries they own to facilitate trade or keep liquidity on hand or whatever the reason is. Um, and the Chinese have been running all over the world, uh, financing these governments. Uh, they bring Chinese workers in, as you know, I'm sure into many of these countries, and they displace the locals, um, which doesn't make them popular. But at the top, they supply enough money uh, to basically take the governments over and, and, and bring them into the Chinese orbit. And I think that's, that's the risk, is the BRICS strategy has been executed brilliantly. And <clears throat> it's, a direct, uh, con it's a direct competitor to the Western system. And so at some point, you know, either they're going to have to get along, which I rather doubt, or they're going to have to resolve their differences. Let's put it that way. And I still think that the economic piece to this is perhaps superior um, in its importance to how many missiles each side has or ships or standing armies. I think it's the money this time. Great question, Aces. Um, yeah, so we're at 12. We're going to, I want to close this from at one o'clock. Uh, so we've got 20 minutes to go. So, um, for Carpath, to get to you in one second. So, um, just to reset the room, got Larry Jetalo from TAS Group uh, talking about a whole multitude of uh, emerging pressure points that exist out there. Tremendous, tremendous. Sorry, I can't. I, we haven't, again, I echo what Asa said. We haven't had a speaker in these rooms that's been as uh, diverse and as uh, all encompassing as you've been. Uh, Larry is a proprietor of TIS Group. Um, he has a research service, which uh, I, I read every day, and, and I suggest that you all subscribe. And if you're interested and maybe trial him, uh, you can uh, go to tasgroup.net or if you want to email Larry directly, it's larry.jetalo. J-E-D-D-E-L-O-H. I repeat, Larry.Jetalo, J-E-D-D-E-L-O-H, at TASgroup.net, and maybe try to service, see if you like it. I, I, it's extraordinary if you like what, what Larry, what you've been hearing today. Okay, so let's go on now. Um, I want to go to Carpathia and then Billy Big Bucks and then my friend Bobby J. Carpathia, what's up, my friend? Hey, thanks, George. I'm going to go low Chicago on the word, no, the word count on the question. I'm going to put a five up. Can Putin peel Germany off? Thank you, Larry.
I think he came very close. Um, Just 10 seconds of history. The chancellor of Germany prior to Merkel was Gerhard Schroeder. Upon leaving office within a matter, I believe, of days, maybe weeks, he suddenly became the chairman of Gazprom Europe, which had to be one of the shortest interview processes in history to attain a, uh, a job like that. Well, you know, so you can make what you want of that. Then the second, the next chancellor is Angela Merkel. She's from the East. Uh, she approved the pipelines that are the problem and promoted the pipelines system that are now the problem. And I, you know, I don't know if it's one of those accidents of history or the timing was intentional. But it is interesting, I think, that she leaves office, I think, in Q4, she's when, she, when she left last year, and by February, uh, Putin's at war with NATO. And she was very close to Putin, from what I understand. She had a good relationship with him. Putin speaks uh, fluent, uh, fluent German from his time when he was in Dresden. So they got along quite well. He's, got, he's dealing with a different group now. And, again, it, you know, sometimes history is a strange thing. Maybe by the skin of their teeth, they can get through this, but they're going to go through some real economic hardship to get to the other side here. And it's not just the military buildup that's necessary that they have, that she refused to do, that Merkel refused to do. And before her, um, not before her, but during her tenure, the current head of the EU, Ursula von der Leyen, tried, from what I understand, she tried very hard as the German defense minister to ramp up spending, and she got no place. So... They have a long way to go that way, but I really, to, to your point, I think the real problem they have is, is energy. And they're going to have to make some huge sacrifices to get to get that resolved over the next few years. And uh, But they're pretty good at this in Germany. So as, as Wellington said, it's going to be a close-run thing, but I, I, think they, I think he came very close to peeling them off. But now maybe there's reason to believe that it's not going to work. Thanks, Carpathia. All right, let's go to uh, we got Billy Big Buck, Billy Big Bucks, and then Bobby J, and then Jeffrey. Hey, Billy, what's up? Hey, hi, George. Um, how are you? Uh, look, um, I, I took the, that space uh, just now in, in the last five minutes, but I, and I, you know, it, it, uh, I heard it was, uh, you know, on China, and um, I, I'm actually, I'm, I'm very worried about China, China, and the, uh, you know, the geopolitical risk associated with, um, you know, with, uh, with China, I, I, you know, I have so many questions, but one of them, you know, let's, let's assume that, uh, you know, the, the Chinese, you know, start to, uh, to really help the, uh, you know, the Russian in, in, in this war, you know, um, send them arms, uh, uh, equipment, whatever, you know, what, what, what would be the policy response or, or what would be the, you know, the response in general, you know, of, of NATO. I mean, it would seem almost impossible, you know, to take economic measure uh, measures against China because that means, you know, the West doesn't, you know, doesn't get anything. No cars, no TVs, no fridge, no, no nothing. So, you know, what would happen if China, if China was going to take a more active, more proactive role in supporting uh, Russia? And, uh, and I mean, do, do you think that, you know, this is this is likely to happen, actually, that, China, you know, China's, you know, steps, you know, steps over and, and becomes more aggressive in its uh, in, in its alliance with uh, with Russia. 
Uh, it's a great question. I think a lot depends, as I said uh, earlier, on what the configuration of the standing committee does look like in November. That could change. Uh, and I think if it does change and she is either uh, his powers are cut or if he were to resign, for instance, uh, you may see a change there in terms of their support, uh, China's support mm -hmm. for Russia, in which case I think Russia's got a real problem. Not sure. But is this likely, this, this change of power? I think at the minimum, his powers are going to be cut, yes. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't rule out something more than that. So mm -hmm. let's leave it at that. Um, you know, to, to date, to your point, um, the, China's helped Russia uh, monetarily, but also practically by delivering annual vehicle parts and I think some vehicles themselves, perhaps some other supplies, but they've kept it pretty quiet. So... You know, the Western response and NATO response hasn't been, you know, it's been basically nothing. Um, if it becomes more obvious, I mean, if you started seeing Chinese troops up on the border, uh, you know, in, in Ukraine, then and I, then I think it's something entirely different. But I don't think that's the case at this point. I don't I don't believe we're going to see that. Not mm -hmm. not this year. But where where do you see, you know, where do you see China? Do you do you see China? You know, kind of in the middle between, you know, between, uh, you know, the West and, and, and Russia? Or do you think there is some, you know, some, some real alliance, you know, of, uh, you know, against the, uh, the liberal West, you know, and the uh, versus the autocratic, um, you know, autocratic uh, East, if you want. But um, I mean, do you think there is really some kind of, a, you know, civilization uh, war, which is, you know, which is just beginning, maybe? Well, that's that is what I believe. Yes, I don't. You know, they, I think they have some formal agreements about how they cooperate economically and militarily, and in terms of security and you know a whole range of things in this currency they're developing, as I as I mentioned. But mm -hmm. I think culturally, it's two different it's two different world worldviews and two different government systems that they're going to try to impose on the West. Mm -hmm. And so I think for the, yeah. for the liberal democracies, this is probably the biggest challenge in hundred years or more, maybe ever. Larry, in terms of the currency and stuff, I mean, you know, the Chinese currency is a closed currency. You see them doing some sort of a commodities-backed sort of barter system, or you see a whole new globally accepted currency coming out of something like that? Well, the digital currency that they're developing, I think, will start toward the end of the year. Um, it's probably, I think they're actually using something now that's uh, used internally only, um, but currency backing, I think, would be only necessary if they were going to try and export usage to other countries. Now, but that probably would be confined, this is my guess, to trading partners who obviously who would accept it. So that would be Russia and these four other small countries in Central Asia from whom they import metals. The one I would really watch for is if, is if the Saudis take it. Because if the Saudis take it, and, and that's why these meetings that are going on right now are so important. We, we really have to get the Saudis back on side here and the UAE. And I think they want to be on side. Uh, I, I've heard that the prince actually in Saudi wants to be, wants to mend relations with us, but the king doesn't. And the king's still the king. But, you know, I, I don't see any mending coming from the Saudis or the Emiratis um, um, it, without some sort of definitive action with regards to the Houthis. You know, I mean, day two on the job, 
Biden denounced the Houthis, took them off the foreign terrorist organization list. And then the very first trip from Israel into Abu Dhabi, uh, they were bombing Abu Dhabi, trying to kill the guy. And mm-hmm. they were calling, they were calling Biden. He wasn't, he was, wouldn't even acknowledge it. So, yeah. so Jack's for openers. Okay. He needs to fix that in my opinion. Yeah. Yep. Agreed. Do we have time for something like this to be resolved by a shift in, you know, leadership in America? Is my question. Uh, we're being pushed to change now via economics. Um, we need their oil and we need their it, it, well, we need more than that, but oil is the immediate need. Do we have time? Um, I don't know. Like, like before, in, in three aces, you might be able to help us with this before they get, you know, too angry with us, you know, not doing anything about the Houthis and everything that you just mentioned. Are we running out of time? Like, what do you, what do you see? Uh. <laughs> Or maybe three aces has some. Um, yeah, I I don't have a strong enough view there to comment. Maybe three aces can. No, can I can, can I suggest we only have a few more minutes left? I'd like to move on to another topic. Um, that's a very difficult question, which I don't think any of us can really answer right now. Um, let's go on to uh, we got Bobby J. Hold on, he fell out. Let me get him back in next. But Bobby J. And then we're going to go to Jeffrey, and then Bowtie. Uh, Bobby J, you should be back. Uh, Bobby, you're back. Good to see you. What's up, yeah, Bobby? Thanks, question for Larry? thanks George. Thanks, Aces. Um, Larry, um, I'm looking for a market event um, that would trigger uh, spread widening um, treasury rally or some other you know big market moment. Mine happens to believe, I happen to believe it, it will be coming from Europe. Where do you think a market event could happen first? I, I think it'll happen in an EM country or several EM countries, and it will back up into the European banking system. That's it. All right. That's simple enough. There we go. Thanks, Bobby. St- stay up on stage. I'm sure there'll be some more questions. All right, let's go to uh, Jeffrey and then Bota. Hey, Jeffrey, what's up? Hey, um, it's great to be able to uh, chat with a fellow Luthold alum and Twin Cityan. So, uh, Larry, I'd be happy to get your uh, thoughts. As I ask a question that piggybacks on some of this geopolitical uh, discussion with China, you know, the elephant in the room, in my opinion, and it's been you know brought to our attention by a lot of high-profile China hawks is Taiwan. What do you think the probability is that China is preparing to make some kind of a move on Taiwan, whether it's militarily or you know, politically or economically? And, and what are the long-term economic implications for U.S. global economic dominance, given that uh, Taiwan you know, controls 70% of the world's semiconductor supply? Mm-hmm. Hey, 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 Larry, Larry, it's a great question. Um, I want to get all the questions in here, so... We could talk about that question all afternoon, so let's try to keep that one on the shorter side so we can work on the last two or three questions. Right? Great question, Jeffrey. Larry, back to you. Jeffrey, if you email me, we just wrote a piece on Taiwan. I had it written two days ago. I'll send it to you. That'll answer your question. 
Great. That's perfect. Can I just throw a, an add on here? How do you reconcile the disparity between the move index and the VIX right now? There looks like to, it looks to nope, be some. No, 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 and even the guys who are an expert on this stuff, you're getting beaten up and chewed up. And it's like you go on zero hedge, you go on whatever, and it's like balls up, balls down. It's a, you know, guys guys buy puts, the market goes down, they lose money. Guys buy calls, the market goes up, they lose money. That is just a waste of time. There's just way – Jeffrey, I don't know you. I'm sure you sound like a smart guy. It's just it just it really rubs me the wrong way. I'm sorry. It's just, We're just not going to discuss volatility. No worries. Sorry about that. It's just that's just that's just like brain damage material. I mean, we'll, we'll just talk forever, and we won't get any useful information out of that. It's just it's just a horrible, quite horrible topic. All right, let's go to Bowtie. Hey, Bowtie, what's up? <laughs> hey, George, how's it going? Thanks for having that's me. Good man. Uh, just had a quick question here. As we all know, you know, when the U.S. catches a cold, uh, sorry, when the U.S. sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold, and obviously, whatever happens in the states, however bad we think that eight. 9% inflation is, is definitely going to rock uh, developing markets and emerging economies far more than it will here. I just wanted to ask, do you guys think that it's somewhat deliberate in, a, in an effort to make countries dependent on the U.S. again? I think countries do do that from time to time. That's my answer. Okay. <laughs> Bowtie, I think Larry, I, I, would, I respectfully ask you not to push Larry. I think he's answered your question. Um, yeah. Larry knows a lot more than he lets on and just, you know, I, I, we don't want him to have to involuntarily, um, you know, enlist in the federal witness protection program. So let's just leave that answer as it is. Um, I think he answered your question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Thank you. Right. Hey, Abe, you're up, man. What's up, Abe? Hey, guys. Hey. How are you? Hey. Yeah, um, a lot has been uh, discussed. I'm, I'm curious about the um, the crisis in uh, in Turkey. Um, they have been uh, technically, um, you know, let's not say insolvent, but inflation's running at I think north of sixty percent. That whole region is a powder keg. I'm curious as to your um, uh, your views and whether or not that's even crossed your radar as uh, Turkey becoming um, a uh, a potential. Uh, uh, Center for Contagion. Thank you very much. And great, uh, great spaces. Incredible. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. I'll just keep it short. It's on the radar. Uh, I'd probably have a better answer for you if you just send me an email and I'll, I'll type something out for you. It's not immediate, but it's interesting what's going on there, I think. Hey, Abe, I'd like to go so quickly. Uh, so for those of you don't, that have not heard Abe speak before, um, He's a man, a true Renaissance man, a jack of many trades, not limited to, but including moves a lot of material, uh, metals and whatnot, um, is in touch with a lot of real-time great economic information. So, Abe, can you just give us 30 seconds? Yeah. What are you seeing in the Eastern Theater now? You were talking, I remember a few months ago, you correctly were talking about how, you know, watch out, supplies being constrained, prices to the moon, et cetera, et cetera. Can you give us a mark-to-market and a, a, your updated views about what you see going on in the materials markets that you function in? Yeah, so um, we have seen a um, a reduction in uh, in steel price. 
which I move a lot into the U.S. Uh, market, uh, primarily uh, from uh, the whole um, Eastern market theater. So from uh, the Ukraine um, throughout uh, all of Eastern Europe. Um, surprisingly, surprisingly, we're now seeing firming yet again. Um, and this time it's coming out of Turkey. Uh, Turkey's actually firmed up about 150 uh, U.S. dollars a metric ton um, uh, for uh, August shipments. So very, very interesting that now we're seeing some, some firming all over again. But the bigger issue, um, and I've discussed this narrative for, I don't know, many months, that, uh, and I'm, I'm really happy to hear um, uh, Larry's views on Germany. It's something that I called out about, I don't know, seven, eight months ago, that it was basically walking dead. Um, and that continues to be the issue. Uh, the European theater, uh, not to overly digress, but the European theater right now is, um, in my view, it's, it's, it's really on precarious ground because the inflationary impacts are actually skewering the consumer on the ground. And a lot of the corporates are having a really, really tough time uh, trying to export that inflation uh, to, to a lot of the consumers. And now you're seeing it. You're seeing it on the ground. There's no question. And all that half a dozen CEOs that I speak to almost on a uh, weekly basis, they're all basically saying the same thing. We're having a really tough time, um, uh, you know, passing these uh, increases along. So you're starting to see a lot of weakness. And I think Q4, which is consistent with what I've, uh, you know, what I've said all along, Q4 is going to be a very different animal in, uh, in the European Union, without question. And the other thing, I'll, I'll say this one last piece. There is a huge divergence right now in, um, in Europe. Uh, many want to just sort of kiss and uh, make up with, uh, with Putin behind the scenes because um, the Ukrainian conflict has actually ravaged them uh, from an yeah. economic perspective, without question, in terms yeah. of pricing, in terms of inputs to production, because people don't understand. It's not just food. All of the general inputs to production, especially going to Germany, France, Northern Europe, most of that stuff is, uh, is a byproduct coming out of the Ukraine and Russia. So um, that's kind of where we're at. And I'll know better in the next uh, uh, 15 days because I'm back in Europe for seven weeks. So I'll be able to report on the ground almost daily. Hey, that's great. We look forward to hearing from you. All right. So, Larry, we're coming up on two hours here. Um, and again, for those of you that enjoyed listening to Larry, if you want to learn more about him, go to tasgroup.net or you can email Larry at larry.jetalo. That's Larry.Jedelo, J-E-D-D-E-L-O-H at uh, TISgroup.net. So, Larry, just in closing here, for the average investor in the room, you know, you're used to dealing with big institutions or whatever, but just for the average guy, average woman who's in the room who has money in the market, maybe they're an index fund or whatever, and, you know, markets are having a tough time. They don't know what to do. Uh, everyone's saying stay the course, um, don't change your asset allocation mix, et cetera, et cetera. What advice would you give them? And, I'm, and we're talking now, not people who are checking the screens every day, every week, but you know, for the average investor, what, what would you tell them to do? I know you earlier in the year you were saying hold a lot of cash. I think you even own some inverse ETFs, et cetera, et cetera. But like right here, right now, given your sort of view of the world, and it's not what's going to happen next week, next month, but looking at, say, between now and the end of the year or over the next year, like what would you say? What, what advice would you give to a, to a friend? Uh, what, what, what would you tell them? Yeah, well, right now we have about 45% in cash and about 10% were short uh, small caps in the U.S. because of the liquidity problem. We have gold, we think, is coming up to a buy signal right here. 
So we, we like our miners here and we like bullion itself. Um, we have a little bit in oil stocks, not much, but if oil, if oil comes down, I would buy some more producers there. But the, the overall message is be careful. It's, we're in a capital preservation phase. Um, it's more important, I think, what you end up with at the end of the year or 12 months from now than trying to squeeze out a 5 or 10% return or whatever the number is. Um, you know, it, it, and these little rallies that occur. We're in a bear market and until the bear is over, and we may have a long way to go in the bear market. And until it's over, um, the key is to make sure that at the end of the bear market, you have the cash and the capability and liquidity to take advantage of it. I'm afraid a lot of people aren't going to be in that position. So I don't know, Aces or uh, Aces, you got anything you'd like to say here? Because this has just been an incredible two hours. Any thoughts, Aces? Um, you know, listen, I mean, I could go I could go on and on and on and on and on and on and on with Larry. I mean, we see eye to eye. Larry, the only thing I would pose as a question to the opening remarks about uh, thoughtlessness and lack of strategy is from my perspective, from the outside looking in at the absurdity of it all, the policies and, you know, the greenness and, and, and the rest of it. Let's not get into the immigration and all the rest of it. Um, it. It almost looks like they do have a plan, which is to like some sort of mass extinction program, uh, you know, which includes, you know, destroying the only real, you know, democracy, capitalist country in the world. Uh, and I question, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've thought about that. You're maybe trying to be a little bit uh, apolitical yeah. here. But, so, you know. Aces, you and I share a lot of uh, political views, but I'd rather, like, not go there. It's just, it's, you know, got it. let's just try yeah. and stay in the middle of the fairway here. Um, yeah. All right, Emma, you got any closing thoughts? Oh, okay. All right, well, this has been awesome. Larry, uh, can't thank you enough. This has been terrific. It's been... Uh, few months since you were last year we have to do this again um and again reach out to larry if you're interested i think he does fantastic work try trialing a service see if you like it and um larry i hope you come back again sometime soon there's certainly no shortage of things to talk about I'll thank you larry thanks thank you larry. Yeah, that, that was amazing thanks, thanks george everybody. for hosting thanks. here and thanks Bye. thanks for aces fabulous larry thank you five the winner thank you,